This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Tonight's reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 5, verse 17 through 32. There are some extra Bibles in front of you in the pews if you want to take a minute. Luke 5, verse 17 through 32. And when you're ready, please stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. On one of those days, as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and took up that on which he lay and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything and rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others sitting at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes murmured against his disciples, saying, Why did you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, 
We are looking at the Gospel of Luke this winter, if you're new um, here. And um, we've been focusing on one big idea, which is an idea that is really central to the concern of uh, Luke, the physician, which is the kingdom of God. What does Luke have to say about the kingdom of God? We've been looking at different themes, and I would say that... um, this passage teaches us that one of the many things that, that Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God was that the kingdom is a, is a kingdom of forgiveness, um, a kingdom of, uh, of release from guilt, of being free, set free from sin. We saw a couple of weeks ago that the main theme of his whole ministry is presented in Luke chapter 4 when he first preaches to his synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and I said that, that Jubilee, the Jubilee, the Jewish Jubilee, which was this year, um, this year in the Jewish calendar where every 50 years they would have freedom from all, for all captives would be set free. All slaves were set free. Uh, all um, debts were canceled. The, the land was returned to its original owners. It was a time of great Jubilee, of rejoicing. And then Jesus said, that is what my ministry is going to be like. It's going to be a ministry of jubilee and release and freedom. And uh, it's from Isaiah 61 describes uh, the jubilee. And Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. And he says, that's the nature of my kingdom. And, and here today, you see that in particular, the focus is on uh, forgiveness. And last week, Austin concentrated on uh, healing, healing of diseases and casting out demons. That's part of the same ministry of release. Uh, ministry of freedom, but now today he gets to, uh, to forgiveness. And he makes this massive claim in verse 24 that really essentially eventually led to his death. And the claim he makes here is that the Son of Man, which is a, a reference to himself coming from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, and the teachers of the law would have known that reference. The Son of Man uh, has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's verse 24. That's the theme of the passage. It's the biggest claim that he's yet made. And as you can see there, the uh, religious leaders, the teachers, they are outraged because they knew exactly what he was claiming about himself. It says in verse 17 that these teachers have begun to gather. He's become more famous, more controversial. And so from every village of not only northern Galilee, but throughout the whole region of uh, Judea, and even people from Jerusalem, the capital, have come way up north to a town they would never come to, Capernaum, And they are investigating this teacher. And they say in verse 21, they begin to murmur amongst each other, uh, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Uh, Blasphemy is something where you say something against God. It's treason against God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they may not, that may strange to you perhaps that uh, they would say that he was blaspheming by forgiving sins. By claiming authority to forgive sins. Because we tend to think of forgiveness like I can say to you, you're forgiven. Uh, or, you know, you're, uh, I, I, pre- I offer you forgiveness. We kind, of, we kind of do that fairly easily. I forgive you. But Jesus is not just offering personal forgiveness. He's offering a cosmic level of forgiveness. And uh, one writer puts it this way. He says, uh, we can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. If you tread on my toe, I forgive you. If you steal my money... I forgive you, but, but what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden upon? Who announced that he forgave you for treading on someone else's toe or stealing someone else's money? Jesus told people their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult the parties injured. 
In fact, he unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned. And I hope that helps you understand why people were outraged when he said, your sins are forgiven. He's basically saying that I am the uh, moral arbiter of the whole universe. And I have the authority to release people from eternal guilt. Not just temporary guilt, uh, personal forgiveness, but uh, absolute cosmic level guilt. It's banished. I say that they are released from that. They are no longer connected to that. As far as the east is from the west, I have removed their sins. No matter how bad their sins are. I mean, a man like Jeffrey Epstein, what he did to those women. A man like Adolf Hitler... Uh, the level, the magnitude of his evil, Jesus would come and say to them, your sins are forgiven you without consulting with the women or the whole Jewish nation. Uh, he just says, I forgive you. And that's, that's a matter of blasphemy, unless he is the moral arbiter of the universe, unless he is God who came to this planet with authority to say, you're forgiven, absolutely forgiven. And because I think he came to earth to forgive sinners, he hangs out with people who need to be forgiven, which is the second part of the story. There's really two parts of the story. There's first the forgiveness of the paralytic man. The second half of the story is the welcoming of Levi, the tax collector, where Jesus says, I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And that's, that's the connection here. It's because, because he is a forgiver, because he's come to forgive, therefore, who's he going to be hanging out with? Not the righteous people, but the people who know they need to be forgiven. And so I want to look at those two statements, essentially. Uh, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And that whole story of the paralytic man, verses 17 to 26. And then the second claim, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that whole story of Levi, verse 27 through 32. And it's because he has the authority that he came for the sinner. So that's the basic outline here. And I want to start with this story of the paralytic, which is told in... Uh, both Mark and Matthew and Luke. And they each have little details that are slightly different. But it must have made a, quite an impression on these three writers that this event happened. It's a very central event in the stories about Jesus in the early church. Uh, verse 18. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And uh, I want you to try to imagine what it would be like to be that man. Sometimes it helps to get into the head of the character uh, there, there, were, there were no power wheelchairs back then. There, were, there weren't even, even really chairs that you could be carried around in. This guy was just sitting on a pallet, on a makeshift bed. It wouldn't even be a bed. It wouldn't be a mattress. It would be like two poles with some leather between them. And he's being carried like a baby everywhere. I mean, that's how this guy gets around. So to be a paralytic back then would be very different than to be paralyzed today. And I once tore my calf muscle and couldn't move around for you know a month or two and that was really really hard for me just the lack of mobility not being able to get up um, get out of bed I mean this guy could never have gone to the bathroom really by himself this guy was completely immobilized this guy lives in a bed and you can imagine the pressure ulcers that you get bed sores like you get in a hospital bed if you don't move very much I mean what a miserable life it would be for this man to live like that, and yet he has these friends who are so desperate to get to Jesus that when they see the, the house that he's teaching in, it's crowded with all these scribes and Pharisees, and it's crowded with people who come to be healed and to hear Jesus, so they can't get in the house. There's no way in, 
And so what they do is that uh, they, they go up on the roof, verse 19. They somehow get this guy up on the roof of the house. There are stairs back then that would usually go to the roof. So they go up the stairs to the roof, verse 19, and they let him down with his bed through the tiles. I mean, I have a hard time, you know, breaking in line at Chipotle to, to get up to my family and order for them. Imagine the boldness and the daring of these friends that went up to the top of somebody else's house and began to disassemble the roof because they were so desperate to get their friend to Jesus because they trusted that the power of God was with him to heal. It says in verse 17, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So you've got to picture the scene. This is, I think this is Peter's house based on the other gospel. I think this is Peter, uh, the apostle Peter's house in Capernaum. And... Um, Jesus is teaching, all these people are there, maybe about this size, and suddenly, you know, up on the roof, they hear these sounds, like, are there squirrels or raccoons up in the, in the roof, and there's something going on up there, so maybe he stops teaching, and then pretty soon, there are like little pieces of tile and dust coming down, and people are starting to see sunlight come through the roof as it opens up, and pretty soon, this makeshift pallet begins to be lowered kind of awkwardly from above. I mean, imagine being in the room and seeing that happen. No wonder three people wrote a story about that. And this man comes down on there, and you can tell from his legs, maybe they're splayed out awkwardly or something, you can tell he's paralyzed. So here this guy drops in, everybody kind of makes room for him. And uh, there's Jesus looking down at the man. Doesn't get irritated because uh, his big moment in the sun has been interrupted, uh, because the church has been completely interrupted by this man coming in. He doesn't get irritated. He looks down at him, uh, and he doesn't say, rise and be healed, which you would expect him to say. Wouldn't you expect that? I mean, he came, obviously, he's obviously there to be healed. And yet, Jesus looks at the man, and he says, your sins are forgiven, in verse 20. He says that, he says that out of the blue, there's no request for forgiveness from the man. There uh, is no repentance on the part of the man. There are no requirements to be forgiven. He just looks at the guy and he says, your sins are forgiven. Um, because Jesus sees a deeper need than, than physical healing. And I think he sees that in all of us. I think that uh, as, horrible as, the, as horrible as the paralysis must have been, I can't imagine how horrible that would be. But, but Jesus sees deeper than that into guilt. And he sees that there's a paralysis of the soul with guilt that is deeper than whatever physical uh, or really even mental ailment you're going through. I mean, if Jesus could come right now and, and he say to you, what, what ailment do you want to be healed from? Uh, is, you know, do you have, uh, is it cancer, addictions, migraines, chronic pain, diabetes, epilepsy? Jesus says, I can heal you from any of those things. What do you want to be healed from? Um, Jesus would say your guilt is a bigger problem than that. That the guilt that you carry around with you every day is a bigger ailment than that. I mean, think about something that you do repetitively that you just feel horrible about. You just keep doing it. You feel horrible about it. Or even like a one-time thing. Um, The residue that leaves in your soul is just a terrible thing. And uh, I can't even really imagine living without guilt because it's so normal to me. But I do remember a year ago, about this time, I did something, and the next day, uh, I was so filled with guilt that it felt like I had I'd taken a big drink of some kind of disgusting liquid. 
Um, like the kind you take when you have a colonoscopy, if you ever had that, that stuff that you have to drink, it's just disgusting. Like uh, milky Gatorade, it's warm. I just felt like there was this thing inside of me that uh, I, I literally like, couldn't get anything done. And uh, Psalm 32, 2, David says, My bones wasted away because I was covering my sins. My, I groaned all day long, he said. And uh, that's what can, can happen to you when you have guilt. The weight of it can be like the way that if there's pressure on your brain, if, if fluid builds up on your brain, it can impair your, your mind, your cognitive faculties. And in some ways, it, the, the guilt, uh, there's a pressure of guilt. That again, David says in Psalm 32, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. There's a mental illness aspect to guilt that's probably underappreciated uh, in mental health professions. But uh, guilt is a devastating thing. We don't necessarily even know how much because you just don't meet anybody without it. But um, think about maybe a chronic relational dysfunction in your life. That's often a source of guilt. So your relationship with your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or your child. That's a huge one. The guilt of child rearing. It could be something specific you did. I was talking to one guy one night who was kind of half drunk and he told me that he had murdered someone. And I was pretty sure he was telling me the truth. And I didn't really know what to do with that, like legally. But um, I just listened to him and the next time I saw him, I didn't bring it up. But uh, I assumed that he knew that I knew. Um, but it could be something a lot less dramatic than that that you've done. Just sometimes it's a one one-time act where you're just filled with that sense of bile inside. There's a kind of a specific Christian guilt that no one feels, but uh, most, mostly evangelical Christians feel the guilt of not uh, having their quiet time um, or not evangelizing. That's a huge one for Christians. And it's one of those ones that's a sin of omission, so you just kind of, it's always out there, just pushing down, like, I'm not doing these things. I'm not praying, I'm not reading the Bible, I'm not spending time with the Lord. There's a kind of distinctly millennial guilt that I somewhat bypassed because of my age. Um, but there's this sense that you're not doing enough for the planet all the time that a lot of millennials feel. Whether it's recycling or not working hard enough for sustainability in the world. And so you just have this guilt that you're not doing something that you should be doing. Or that you're actively harming the planet at every moment that you make these decisions. It can be just the guilt of having stuff. Having a lot of stuff. The guilt of having a certain uh, amount of privilege. Uh, it can be really odd things like drinking too much uh, Coca-Cola, drinking soft drinks, watching too much TV, too much shopping, too much screen time. That can be a big source of guilt, especially with parents with their children on screen time. And Jesus says, let it go because it's not doing you any good. And I have authority to forgive it. And you don't need it. And you might think that it's helping you. That's the thing about guilt is we think that if I gave that up, well... I might lose my motivation to change or maybe uh, it would be dangerous for me to do so because I would just keep doing that thing that I hate. Or you might think if I can kind of atone for the thing that I've done a little bit, do a little penance, then that will take care of it. Like if I pay 10%, then he can pay 90. But if you think about it, it's just ludicrous. It's absurd the way we treat them. Jesus says, all you can do is release it. It's not helping you. And that's why I came to earth, is to let you release it. So let it go. That's the first point here. 
the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive your sin. And he's here um, tonight offering that to everyone. And there's no reason not to partake of that offer. There's no reason. There's nothing holding you back. The paralytic man did nothing. He was not asked to do anything. He just rose up, filled with freedom, not only from his paralysis, but from his guilt. So that's point one. The second point follows directly from that, namely that uh, if he has that authority to forgive, he's going to be hanging around with people who need forgiveness. He's not going to be hanging around with people who think they're just fine, who are like the Pharisees and the scribes and and the the teachers of the law who think that they are not in need of forgiveness. He's going to be spending time with people like Levi. I have come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That's the second point. And so I love the way the first story bleeds right into the second story. It's kind of seamless. Uh, Immediately, he rose before them. This is the paralytic. Uh, He picked up his bed that he'd been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. I can imagine this guy um, standing up and testing his new legs. And, and the very first thing that perhaps he would do would be to dance on them. I mean, that would stand the reason, wouldn't it? That you would dance. The new freedom you would have to be able to walk for the first time in who knows how many years, maybe ever. And he stands up and uh, perhaps dances. It certainly says he's glorifying God. And dance is one of the better ways to do that. So the jubilation of the man as he enters Jubilee, as he enters the Jubilee of Christ is contagious, and he forms the head of a parade of some sort. In verse 26, it says, Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Not just the healing, but the forgiveness, probably especially. Amazement, glorified, awe, extraordinary. My favorite movie about Jesus by far is a claymation movie made by some Russian animators, uh, and it's called The Miracle Maker. And uh, The Miracle Maker has a great depiction of this scene, one of my favorite parts of The Miracle Maker. And um, when they see the guy stand up, they all get out their flutes and their little hand drums, and they begin to dance. Everybody in the village begins to dance as the procession moves forward. And the next thing you know, uh, there's Levi at his tax collecting booth and he gets caught up in kind of the tornado of the jubilation uh, of this parade and so it just bleeds right into the story of Levi and verse 27 after this he went out and he saw Levi the tax collector Levi the tax collector now we we got to be careful about uh, romanticizing tax collectors because they get a bad rap and so we sometimes try to think of them as like not that bad. They're, not, they're just kind of, they're misunderstood. They're misunderstood people who were, uh, who were kind of marginalized by the, the Jewish nation. Uh, but that's not true at all. They were greedy. They were manipulative. Um, they were predators. Um, they would uh, lend and take way more than uh, just huge interest rates. They would extort money from people. I mean, they were working for Rome. And they were collecting taxes for Rome, so they were traitors. Uh, they were working for the empire against Israel. They're traitors. And uh, for some reason, I always picture uh, Draco Malfoy. Just that, that's what Levi is like to me. That kind of 
Uh, he's kind of cowardly and weak, but he has like Nagini behind him, the big snake. And so he has this, he has all of Rome, the might of Rome behind him, but he's a sniveling little uh, frightened man who is mistreating everyone. Um, do not romanticize Levi. He was not a good man. He's a terrible man. He was despised. And yet, uh, Jesus doesn't just forgive him, but he recruits him. You can see the scandal in that. In verse 27, it doesn't say stop collecting taxes and apologize to all these people and give them their money back and sign this paper. You'll never do it again. And then I will call you into my people. No, he just says, it just says, follow me. And in telling Levi to follow me, obviously there's an offer there of hospitality and welcome to this man who is probably the the worst man in town. And the effects of this uh, welcome, this unconditional welcome of the kingdom are volcanic. Because what it says Levi did was, verse 28, he left everything and he rose and he followed him. And when I first read that, I thought that left everything meant that he gave up all his money. Uh, but it's not that because he then the next thing he does is he throws a huge party. So he's not, he's not just giving away all his money, but he's using it for the kingdom, for, jubil- for more jubilation, for, for witness. I mean, he didn't, he didn't make a plan to evangelize a bunch of people, but he just felt so filled with joy that he had to call all of his terrible friends um, from Capernaum. You know, probably all the most despised people in Capernaum. And he calls them all in. He says, let's have a huge party. Verse 29, Levi made for Jesus a great feast in his house. And I think leaving everything there means he, he left his old life. He left his old life of collecting taxes for the empire and uh, sitting at a tax booth, in some ways paralyzed in that position of sitting at a tax booth and just raking people's money away. And, uh, and now he, he rises up. I think it's important that he goes from sitting to now he rose and he followed him into the Jubilee. And it says uh, that a large company of tax collectors and others reclined at the table with Levi. I mean, I love that. That he went out and who were the people that were at that party? All of the people that Levi already knew. They were called uh, sinners and tax collectors by the... The scribes and Pharisees in verse 30, these are people who were never going to be welcomed to the synagogue. They would have burned all their bridges. They would, there's no way they would ever be found in a synagogue. And these are gamblers, maybe drug dealers, maybe the, the women who were paid to sleep with these tax collectors. Um, but that whole group is now in Levi's house, and it's become like a synagogue itself. And there's Jesus uh, eating and drinking with them. And I think that Levi just wanted all of his friends to experience this lavish welcome of the kingdom, the hospitality of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. And so I imagine like he, he goes down to his cellar. He probably had a huge house. He was probably very wealthy. He goes down to his cellar and he gets out the best wine. You know, bring out the best wine, kill the fatted calf, bring out you know, fresh pita bread and olive oil and, and figs and grapes and dates. And if he had little white lights, he would have strung those around his courtyard He would have had music of lyre and trumpet and singing and dancing. And and the religious leaders see this and they're they're just offended by the prodigality of of the grace. The sheer prodigality of this grace. They, They grumble like they did with the paralytic. Why do you, disciples, verse 30, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's bad enough to even talk to them, but you're having them over in this huge party like you're okay with what they're doing. It's like an endorsement 
of their lifestyle. Cable fellowship back then was a very, very big deal. It, it was an endorsement of the lifestyle. It was kind of like when Ellen DeGeneres was sitting with uh, W at the Cowboys game. I don't know if you heard about that, but you know George W. Bush and Ellen DeGeneres with the Cowboys game. And she got all this flack for just sitting with him because she was kind of endorsing his ways. Well, this would have been way beyond sitting at a Cowboys game. This was like the, the disciples and Jesus were saying, these people are all right. These are my people. And these are tax collectors and sinners. And I love how when Jesus uh, hears the grumbling, um, this is also really well done in The Miracle Maker, but in the middle of a bite of lamb or whatever, he kind of looks over his shoulder and with a wry smile, he says, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician, but only those who are sick. Verse 31. He doesn't annihilate them. Uh, doesn't castigate them. He's playful with them. But what he's saying is, you know, who do you find uh, in a hospital? You find, uh, you don't find people who are getting up early to work out. You don't find people eating smoothies and kale or wearing workout gear all the time. You find in a hospital people who are bitter and often smelly, dirty, lazy, people whose lives are a wreck, uh, no composure, no self-discipline, no self-respect. I mean, not always, obviously, uh, but people who have let themselves go a lot of times. When you go into a hospital, you just, I mean, when I visit in the hospital, I just, part of me doesn't want to be there because of the sickness I feel there. And I'm definitely generalizing here, but the point Jesus is making is, is my kingdom is, a, is like a hospital, like the, the worst hospital, the worst part of the worst hospital you've been to. That's my kingdom. And I, I welcome people into my kingdom who you tend to look down upon. You know, me and you. That we tend to look down upon people like that. That I came for people who are much worse than you think that you are. That's what he's saying to the scribes and the Pharisees. And really to anyone who is kind of used to religion. Uh, everyday normal religion. That's what Jesus is saying. That people with very disordered lives. Very low functioning people. Very uh, broken home type people, people who are, who are sometimes narcissistic and centered on themselves. They don't have any resources to help other people. Uh, he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The sickness is just a metaphor, something deeper. I, I did not call the righteous people, but sinful people. And obviously he's not saying there are righteous people and there are sinful people. He's not saying there are these two categories. He's saying no one is righteous, but you think you are. And for your own good, I'm mocking your pretensions to moral superiority. That's what he's, he's loving even the, the teachers of the law by saying that to them. It's like a little parable that's supposed to get under their skin so they can laugh at themselves. And their preposterous self-righteousness that is killing them. Because he has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And that's why he welcomes uh, desperate people for forgiveness. That's why they're the ones hanging around him. His whole ministry. Uh, you have people like Levi and his friends. Those are the people that hang around with him. It's an amazing thing. Because he didn't come to earth to, to recruit like the... He didn't come to recruit a really strong team. The best and the brightest to get the best. You know, I'm going to go out and find the most virtuous people. The most uh, high functioning people. The people with the greatest degrees. The most talent. I'm not, I'm not doing that. That's not why he was here. He was here to release people from their sin and their guilt. And that's, that was going to be the group of people that he was going to make that was going to change the world. That type of people. Those kinds of people. He doesn't have any interest in gathering an A-team. Uh, he wants us free from guilt. He wants a group of people that are free from guilt. And he, and he wants that so much 
that he, he wants to give you a sign, a, a physical, visual sign that you're forgiven. Because otherwise, you're not going to believe it. Um, he gives us this incredible sign in verse 24. He says, um, so that you would know that I have authority. He wants, the, he wants the man to know. He wants the whole group to know. This is going back to the story of the paralytic. But he says, so that you would know. And not just kind of believe in your heart. Uh, not just kind of hope a little bit that he... No, that you would know for a certainty that I have authority. He says, rise and walk. And when that man stands up to walk again, the main thing being done there is that everyone knows he's now forgiven. Yes, he can walk around now, but that's not the main miracle going on here. The main miracle is that that walking is a sign that he is really and truly forgiven. It's a powerful external sign to drill forgiveness deep down into his soul, into their soul of the people in the congregation, and into your soul as you read this passage. And he gives us an even more powerful sign in this meal. This meal is an external, uh, tangible, edible, visual sign that you are forgiven. He doesn't just leave it to me saying that to you, but he wants you to taste it on your tongue, to see it and to smell it. He says, uh, which is harder, to forgive or to heal? That's the question he, he asks. Which is harder? I've often wondered which is harder. I mean, in some ways it's easier to say, I could say you're forgiven, wouldn't do anything, but I couldn't say you're healed and you stand up and you're healed. In one way it's easier to say you're forgiven, but in another way, in a more profound way, it's much harder to forgive. When Jesus heals people, it doesn't cost him anything. He doesn't get sick when they get healed. Nobody tried to kill him when he healed people, but when he forgave people, people were outraged. This is what led to his crucifixion. As he went around saying that he was God and forgiving people. He had come to earth to just forgive, forgive. Your debt's canceled. Your debt's canceled. You're free. You're released. No more condemnation. And by forgiving us, uh, not only was he crucified by humans, but, but he took all of, all of our guilt on himself. To heal cost him nothing. To forgive cost him his own life. And more importantly, it It cost him all of the condemnation of God for us. That all came upon him. And that's what we see at this table right here. 